Hello and welcome to seven of Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. The topic for today, the headline for today is the politics of waking up and in preparing for the podcast. Up from me originally, which says the politics of politics is politics. And obviously, this should remind you of me riffing off the original quote from the business of business is business. And then the question arises, should it really be like that? So maybe just a couple of introductory words to frame that conversation. When I look from a citizen's perspective of how I perceive representative uh, parliamentary democracy. I can't speak for all democracies out there. I can only speak for a couple of democracies that I know quite a bit in Europe or the one in my home country, which is Germany. Then we sense that this is why the quote came up. The politics of politics is politics. Ultimately, politics became a system that feeds itself. So just a couple of points here. So when we just look at like most electoral cycles, I can only speak for Germany. So when we vote people into parliament for four years and then we say, okay, they might take a year or so to really get on with their work. And we take the last year off where they again go campaigning to get reelected, which leaves just two years. This for sure does not allow for a long-term engagement, let alone really taking into account like the many generations that will follow us and that inherit the situation of the planet yeah, that, that we are creating right now. The other thing that I always found crucial is that when we look at those people in parliament that are representing the electorate, it becomes, depending on which democracy, I think it's like a lot worse in the United States than certainly it is in Germany, but also in Germany, a lot of the politicians voted into power are not representing um, the demographics of the people they are representing. So I feel like the system we built is deepening the many uh, divides already existing. So maybe with that couple of introductory words, um, I would like to hand over because today we don't want to focus on the problems level too much, but more really looking on the grassroots level, what are the things emerging, also looking on the insides that make us human and the cultures we need to rethink and rebuild uh, to allow for a politics of waking up. Indra, it's my great <laughs> pleasure um, to share that precious time with you. I would start with the first question that just came up. Why that title of the book that we will, you know, speak about later today, but why the title, The Politics of Waking Up? What does politics and waking up have to do with each other? Yeah, great, great framing. And you really dropped us into the, the very question that was the cause 
of the project that I'm running, which is called The Alternative UK, uh, which then led to this book being written. So it's, you know, you, you dropped in at the right place. And um, what I'm trying to evoke is this idea that what people will recognize is that we've been in something like a revolution for about three decades, about 30 years, ever since the birth of the internet. Every person who has access to a mobile or to a computer, you know, suddenly shifted their idea of uh, not just their ability to make a mark in the world, but also their understanding of what's going on in the world, right? So that description that you had of politics just now, I think is happening everywhere. And it's really accelerating at the moment. This sense we're waking up to our perceived powerlessness in the system, you know, so that now we can understand how the political system works. And I, I refer to it as the party political system, you know, dominated by parties who are, you know, within a system that requires people to oppose each other and compete with each other. And the reality of that is, you know, as a, as, as, as a, as a community or as a nation of people, we are designed to be invested in the failure of about half the population. Because if you're on one side or the other, you've got to choose between one or the other. And that means you want the other to fail. I mean, I was thinking about this, this, this Christmas actually, that even in, in a, quite an extreme way, Half the people want us to be locked down now, and the other half want us to be absolutely free to do as we choose. And these are two really opposing views. Um, and it's kind of the opposite of what Christmas is, right? Christmas is really about us coming together, being kind, hearing each other, you know, hearing about each other's lives, you know, and, and honoring this idea of uh, compassion and so on. That is what Christmas is supposed to be about. But our party political system locks us into opposition of every other person in the nation, really. Or in, in Europe, there's more proportional. So there's, you know, there are more parties than just two. But there's still this basic oppositional left versus right, us versus them. That's the, that's the system we're locked into. And the waking upness of it is that the more we read about it, and we've really seen this accelerate during COVID, the more we get, you know, how dysfunctional the system is. And there's a lot of reaction now. Some people are waking up for the very first time to the idea that they're being manipulated at all. Okay, so those of us who've been looking at this maybe for decades, maybe for our whole lives, we've been conscious of the manipulation of elite systems or the manipulation of the media that serves those systems or you know there is a there is something that keeps us hooked onto what I call the growth economy the growth economy which has you know destroyed our planet we're somehow hooked onto that as if we're all addicts you know what made us do that it's contrary to our actual nature there's always been a degree of manipulation in the system uh, by the people who most profit from it. But we're now in an era of people waking up to this for the first time. And people are thinking because of COVID, 
and vaccination, for example, for the first time, they're becoming aware of their freedom or their loss of freedom or their need for freedom or the need to take care of each other, social responsibility. These are things that are becoming clear to people for the first time right now. And it's chaos. You know, it's a chaos of voices and opinions and, you know, theories and conspiracy theories and, you know, strict rules. And the politics of waking up is trying to suggest that there is a way to work with this huge, diverse, multi-perspectival polity now waking up. There is a way to work with that that would still create uh, good value for everyone, that can give outcomes that are not only good for individual human beings, but for the communities in which they live in and will have an impact upon the planet. But it requires radical redesign. And that's really what the book is about. And that's what our platform's about. So I would like for the listeners to understand better your person to run through some maybe two or three stations in your life that link to that actually just that what you're trying to birth onto the planet now so, so i would love to invite you to to look at one maybe two episodes before um, you started um, the alternative to come to the point why did you do the alternative and then mm. go off from there because i have the feeling the better our listeners understand the sequence of the epiphanies you know mm. they can better follow from what you're trying to build sure. on from now yeah lovely so um I'm just trying to think about how far back to go, but but let's say that you know from an early age, um, you know I I was born in Holland and I moved to the UK. My father's from Indonesia, so I always had a a difficulty, if you like, belonging anywhere, and I've always perceived life from this dual perspective that needs to be transcended. So, you know, my father from a Muslim culture, Indonesia, my mother from a Catholic culture in Holland, um, I, was, I was raised with both of those things. And so the desire for transcendence was always there from a very early age. How to make sense of two very different things coming together through relationship and love. So I would say that that's very fundamental to my approach. And then at the age of 11, um, my brother died in a car crash. And I had a, if you like, a sort of a real reckoning with God. You know, where, where is the power and where is my agency? So I can remember, and this you obviously remember that, you know, as a very young adolescent, how emotional this experience is. 
but really praying to God that he would save my brother. And then my brother died that night. I was really forced to reckon with death and what is death and what is my power as a living human being to transcend you know, the idea of death as an end to something. So again, transcendence, you know, my, I, I found, you, you know, what I now understand to be a sort of dissociative way, you know, I, I, I escaped from my reality of, of death and found a way to reconnect with my brother that kept him alive for me in a way. But that was obviously the birth of a spiritual journey. And in fact, throughout my uh, teens, six of my mothers, seven brothers and sisters, died of cancer. And so this confrontation with death and the impact it was having on the people around me, not least my mother, who went into a lifelong depression, as you can imagine, she didn't really emerge from that. But me as a child and a teenager growing up was always trying to transcend these natural boundaries. So the big question for me as I, as I moved into my 20s was really what is human agency? So on the one hand, facing these brick walls, you know, which is, which is the idea of death. But on the other hand, transcending that through a spiritual practice, always feeling and continuing to feel connected with the people that you have and have had in your life beyond, beyond any simple binary uh, of life and death, feeling always that they're in your life. And so... You know, as I said, going into my 20s then, I was thinking about transcendence. I did a lot of work training under a very uh, well-known um, father of peace studies, a guy called Johann Galton. He was my mentor for many years. And I learned about transcendence and how to transcend conflict in communities between nations. And I became uh, a consultant in this area and put on courses and hosted uh, conferences around conflict transformation. And then um, I had become, uh, maybe I should have said a bit early on, I went back to Indonesia to sort of look at my roots. And when I was in Indonesia, I met Buddhism for the first time. And uh, it was a very, what I would call, um, on the territory kind of practice where the people in this movement uh, of the Nichiren sect in Indonesia uh, would, would, would take on the social division in Indonesia by going out into the small villages around the big capitals and working with people in those places and I was, I went with them a couple of times. Well, in fact, over a period of seven months, I went several times with them. And the pattern would be something like this. We'd go out into a village, which at the time was, um, you know, being receiving food parcels from the military every week, you know, a very dependent existence that was being kept content in, if you like, through... Uh, a, you know, a religious practice. Like there was a, a kind of a content existence there. And when we went to visit my 
the leader of this organization, who was a kind of uncle, friend of the family, he would give a short talk, always in a language that I couldn't understand. I couldn't speak Indonesian. And when we, while we were there, I would always hear him saying, uh, speaking gently to people. And this word, ada, would always puncture everything he was saying. And afterwards, I asked him, what, is, what does that mean, ada? And he explained, it simply means, like, it's there. So, for example, you think you have no resources. You do. You think there are no uh, connections. There are. You think there is no way forward for you. There is. And it was a kind of um, a, 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 what I call a psychosocial um, patterning of connecting the way you're thinking to the possibilities around you. Because when he could do this, land this simple possibility of this is what it looks like to you, but in reality, it's quite different. The resources are there, your capabilities are there, the people you need to work with are there. You know, the, the future is there. This kind of conviction which comes from his deep practice, you know, it was the thing that could land in any space that we visited. People would just listen and hear and try to receive. And then we would go back there, you know, maybe six or 10 weeks later, they would invite us back. And even in that short time, some movement will have happened. Somebody will have planted some seeds. Somebody will have begun to build a road. After six months, you'd see somebody had begun to build some new houses so that the young people could move out from their parents but still stay in the village. Whatever their needs were and their desires for, they, they found a way to begin it, you know. And that, that was the absolute core to my way of moving now through the question of where is agency. Every time I find myself hitting a bit of a brick wall because I'm looking really to create something new or be an innovator or try to make something happen that sounds impossible, this returns to me that the thing you're looking for is already there. How do you, how do you recognize, recognize what is already there? How can you work with, amplify, you know, intensify connections between what is already there. And that's very much the way that we begun the project of finding a new politics. So just to drop one more in there, maybe I've talked for too long, said too many things, but just to say, so the question of agency, the learning of trans transcendence and transformation, the perspective and the deeply held feeling of what you're looking for is already there. And then just the one more thing, which maybe we'll come to later and you can invite me to talk about it, which is the difference between hard power and soft power. But maybe we'll just put, there's maybe just one too many things for you to, to respond to. I would uh, like to come to the soft power afterwards. Um, what I'm just curious, to get is you're mentioning 
when you were reflecting on not only the death of your brother as a mm. wake-up call, but also the subsequent multiple deaths in your family, the notion of transcendence. Also, I heard that through the lines when you were mentioning um, your stay in Indonesia, but mm. at the same time of the action and the ADA, it is already here. So I'm really just curious if there is a there's a link in mm. between those elements mm. or if it's just different sides of a of a geometrical figure. I'm just curious. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, because in a way it's something I had to piece together as I was growing up. So when I mentioned before, and those of you listening who know a little bit about psychotherapy or the psyche, this idea that I kind of dissociated from my reality in the beginning, you know, I felt so desperate, you know, to lose my brother. And then the first one of my aunts who died was also like a second mother to me. And then I was away from my homeland. You know, so I felt very alienated from my reality. And I've really expanded that by, um, in a way, feeling abandoned by God, right? So, you know, I had to sort of dissociate myself from everything that I had trusted and relied on and find a place to settle. And the place that I settled was in a way quite far away from what other people would think of as their normal reality, you know, that life is all about getting up in the morning, having your breakfast, going to your job, reading the newspapers, it's all about that. And for crucial periods of my life, it wasn't about that at all. It was about what is life? What is my power? Who am I? Where is my brother? Like enormous questions that I was trying to conjure with while having to go about my daily life. And I recognize that now is why I've been able to become what I call a, a systems convener. It's almost as if I could watch my life from a great, you know, height. You know, I could perceive and watch without really being in it. Um, and it's only much later that I realized that if you're lucky as an adult, everybody can get to that point um, where they begin to become, you know, observers of their life rather than simply embedded in it, right? And that's... You, that that is the but I was catapulted into that place by this pain, and so therefore I I had learned firsthand that pain and suffering are vehicles. You know they're really vehicles for intense growth. And as a very young child, I found myself able to look at life in a certain way that many of the adults around me couldn't, because they never did that. You know of having to get away from my reality and observe it. So now I would say yes, as soon as my this uncle started to speak like this, it's already there. I totally recognized what I was myself doing, which is to be able to look at something from the perspective of there's a system and uh, there's a world that you can observe from a certain from a certain standing point, 
you can be in it and you can also observe it. That these are two perspectives of the same thing. Mm-hmm. When you're only embedded in something, you're on the ground, it's a very important perspective because you are really facing the difficulties as they come up for most people right in the face. And that's where you have to, to design your systems in on the ground with the people. But to be able to take this aerial view and observe it as a system that is unfolding beneath you with the big questions of what is life and where is my agency, this is something that comes a bit, this is something that you learn to develop as you go through life. It's just that as a young person, I was catapulted into that space early. And I tried to come down for it. I, you know, I wanted to live an ordinary life, even as a young child, but this was sort of how I was, you know. And I remember a lot of my friends sort of laughing at me often and saying, you know, you know, why do you always talk about life with a capital L, you know? Why do you think you can have anything to say about life? You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's not what we, you know, it's, it's, it's not real. It's not real what you're talking about. It's, let's, let's, yeah. let's, let, let's try to, yeah. to, to weave that into the overarching topic of politics of waking up. And mm-hmm. I will try to give it a chance. So imagine you mm-hmm. want to hire a solid executive in a bigger organization that has underlying semi-transparent processes of hiring. So like an Mm. HR department and you're searching for whatever. Mm. A manager for a product line in a big company, you would usually um, like write the job position, put it out there and you would undergo, depending on high up the packing order the job is for, uh, a multiple stages vetting process. And in that vetting process, you would also invest quite a lot of time and effort and underlying science um, to have the people do multiple tests during the assessment period, you have multiple stages, and Certainly, the last most promising ones would need to go under, like undergo, like multiple psychological tests to test for mm-hmm. like robustness, addiction, anti fragility, resilience, personality tests, narcissism, and all sorts of stuff. So I know this is now getting a little bit polemic because, again, this is also just a semi-transparent process. But what I mean with that is when I look at the politicians voted into power since I'm a small (laughs) child, this might be just my opinion. So, again, I don't want to point with the finger on them and say just overall they're they're like all quote-unquote bullshit. It's so cool that I can use swear words. In, in, in the live podcast, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. You know, see <laughs> if they cut it out on YouTube. Um, but but when I look at both the trauma, quote unquote, or like deep hardship you encountered in your life, mm. and your ways in your biography to work it through, mm. to come through to a healthy transcendence, to a mm. healthy perspective of perceiving capital L life Mm. and not suffer always from the circumstances, from the unhealthy 
dissociated perspective. Mm. So I think the trying the, the question that I'm trying to wrestle with is what culture do we need to nourish to invite those people onto the table and into the rooms where I think that's basically mm. now one of the next steps that we are inviting together in a room to to take on responsibility and like co-create the future we want as citizens. I'm really just curious. I mean, we can't force people into healing, right? It's like doesn't make any sense, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, part of the well, first of all, let me think about or let me try and respond to this idea that your know, politicians are one thing and we are not at the alternative necessarily trying to improve the current political system. Okay, we're trying to design a new political system and to just leapfrog into that for a moment just so that your listeners know what I mean by new um, it's not new it's old <laughs> it's uh, it's what we call a parallel polis right so the concept of the parallel polis is that there is a, a current political party political system that really will take a long time to evolve we won't in my experience, there's no way to make that better quickly because it's like trying to lift a table while you're standing on it, right? It's what you said. Politics of politics is politics, right? That's, it's, 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 I've tried a long time. It's not easy. It's not possible really to, to renew it or to transcend it within itself. It's the wider society that has to do that, right? Because in the end, politics is only an aspect of our society as it stands. Only 2% of people want to be members of political parties. This is across Europe. 2% of the people have enough interest in or are attracted to or want to give their money to a political party. This is what's running our entire system. So that, that shouldn't even be a problem uh, for politicians, it's kind of mind boggling. But let's look at then at society itself outside of the party political system and reimagine that we're talking about trying to create a, you know, a new um, way to, to, to hold and to give uh, agency to, to people, right, to citizens. And can we design for that? That for us would give rise to something called a parallel polis, two things sitting alongside each other. Right, that would be able to act in partnership, but mostly the influence of people coming together in this more people-powered space, the huge influence of their voice, their decisions, their creativity, their innovation would reshape this old system. But ultimately, they're like two legs, one body. One body is the whole of society and there's two legs uh, serving that same body. So just, I want to put that in the frame so that when we talk about what we're developing, let's drop entirely the idea that what we're developing has to please the party political system at all. It doesn't have to. It has to please human beings in society who are looking to get more out of their lives, to feel more 
satisfied, to have more belonging, to feel that they have more power. You know, it's really meeting all of those emotional needs that drive us every single day can be found in this, uh, you know, other part of the parallel polis that we're, that is being designed. Um, and the way that we conceive of that, you know, I think we started, I'll just try to come back to your question, that we started with the question, you know, what is the human being at the heart of this new system? You know, the human being at the heart of the old system is, you know, homo economicus, you know, conceive of a human being as needing material things, a job, a tax cut, roof over your head, job done. That's the job done as far as the politician is concerned. In this other space, you have at the core of the system, the fully complex bio, psychosocial, spiritual entity called Alistair, right? Has all of these capacities, all of these needs, needs to build a community and a system that helps those things get met. That is not the same world that the party political system is trying to design, not at all. Then so let's, let's, let's weave in some, um, some, some comment, uh, comments from the people live um, watching. So I'm wondering, it's, it's, it's funny because now we're sketching the examples before having sketched exactly like the alternative, but doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's like my understanding, I, I would consider myself like, interested but more like a, a layman in the specific sector that that you're working is my understanding we see here Jonas Woltersdorf um, that civic chambers as have been conceived of um, in France for example or also the citizens assemblies mm -hmm. um, as for example we had in Germany two running are still not they kind of still come out of the old system. That's so right. the citizens action networks to which we will spend quite a portion of today's dialogue are still something different. So let's um, that's, skip that's a little bit the biographical part and, and, and all the like sequencing. Like, mm. Give some hands on examples. How do we as the listeners trying to understand to, to, to build a new um, polis How can we imagine citizens' action networks? Okay, so the first uh, motivation for developing anything like that at all uh, came from the perception that, you know, in any city or town, we are divided. We're divided by the current party political system and the media that keeps that division happy. So our very first uh, priority was what kind of spaces can we build that allow people from across these divides to meet each other. And we developed, you know, a process called a collaboratory. And it started with just working with the civil society organizations in any given town. Let's talk about the one we did in Plymouth. You bring them together uh, to acknowledge that they can work together to build something for the citizens in that place. And then you, it's a series of events very friendly and I would say arts driven events that just attract people into the space to begin to have conversations about the future. So you're not talking about the problems. You're not talking about how do we, how do we um, solve the housing crisis? How do we solve the, that? We're not trying to replicate the work of the government or the local council. 
you're trying to somehow tap into what is it this person is yearning for? What is this person needing at this moment? And how can we provide that in this space? And that's the container that we started to build um, that then became a citizens action network. So you start, as I say, with the civil society organizations who already know what they've been doing. So there's not a lack of solutions in the space, right? Those civil society organizations are also the, 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 the core of the cosmolocalism, if you like, because they are uh, pulling on all over the internet from different parts of the world, solutions, prototypes. Anyway, they're very well resourced, but their conversation has always been just amongst themselves. So the next stage of this collaboratory was to build in, to bring in people who are, gen, who are habitually excluded from that conversation and create a conversation space, which is always, what kind of future do we want for this place? Right, so it was a combination of dreaming and imagination, but also practical, putting on the map. There was always a map on the floor of this town or city. You know, if you're dreaming of having, a, you know, a new supermarket with only locally produced food, put it on the map and let's decide how we're going to start that thing happening how small can it start? How, how do we build it? So moving from dream space to territory. Let's do it in this space together. So it was always very place-based. And then um, how to design it almost like a club that you could then appeal in some way through using new currencies or you know, through opportunities for people just to join in on things. They could just be you know, food initiatives or they could get free stuff, but to attract the people who don't give a shit, right? That's also allowed to be said on your channel, right? So, you know, what about the people who don't give a shit? They're the most important people because if you're not engaging them, then they are still vulnerable to being triggered and manipulated by the vested interests who are always going to keep coming for those people, right? This is what we found very much at the time of Brexit, we found that, you know, that vulnerable people, are, you know, can be harnessed. But if they are engaged with something going on and that is growing all the time and increasing participation and giving you opportunities to make decisions together or, you know, if you can get involved, even if the involvement is just, I go there to get my, you know, locally produce food or I get there, I go there because I get free cinema tickets when I go. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but the engagement is the thing that helps to protect people from the bigger, um, you know, growth economy constantly trying to um, manipulate and jerk them, jerk them around. So it's needed a container for people's action. Yeah, and that is the basis of a can. We started to prototype these in different parts around the country only to discover really that ADA, they already exist. So if you're looking at transition towns or eco-villages or many of the more ambitious cooperatives, these cans exist or, you know, some municipalities that are very people-driven or you know, the mutual aid networks at neighborhood level were already beginning to be these things. You know, the more you look, the more you see they already are there. But 
this is not what people think of as the core of a new socio-political economic system. But if you actually add up what they're doing, that's exactly what they're giving rise to. So this idea of, you know, the fourth sector economy, I think you are aware, you know what I'm talking about, where social enterprise really, that really builds on initiative, imagination, creativity of the people who want to work in their communities. This is the fourth sector economy growing up um, everywhere. So it's very different from what the local council offers you. The local council offers you the chance to answer the same questions that they are answering, you know, or address the same problems that they are addressing. And that is a very um, trapped situation. Even when they get answers, so imagine maybe at the city level or maybe the national level, we hold a citizens assembly. First of all, only a very few people can really be involved in that. It has great symbolic power. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great innovation. But it depends who initiated it. If the government initiated it, it's still up to them whether they deliver on its findings or not. And in our case, in the UK, we had a climate assembly. It was the one great demand from the Extinction Rebellion. We had a climate assembly. Did it make any difference? Absolutely none. You know, the, most, most of the people who are taking this seriously want to have goals for 2030. But these, those goals were never picked up. Only the goals for 2050 were picked up. So, so I, will, I will spice up a little bit the conversation, um, much like another guest did in, in, in the last uh, episode. Um, so when I'm trying to make sense of what you're showcasing of that parallel polis, it seems almost as if all the in initiatives already existing and often though being very under-resourced certainly in terms of capital like monetary capital i'm not saying under-resourced in all the other multiple capitals but like monetary capital mm. um They, they need to find a place where, where they unite. It almost feels like there needs a, a network, a mycelium that shows the people, sorry, my, my geography of Great Britain is not so good, you know, but to show mm -hmm. basically the people in London, Birmingham, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Plymouth, wherever, mm -hmm. that they are... in a broader sense, activating agency together mm. so that they don't feel just like the local, mm. but mm. they feel like at least the meso level, you know, that mm. like national level of being able to influence and what would happen if, let's make it uh, very low benchmark let's what would happen if like just 10 cities in the uk with mm. the adjacent citizens networks on the ground in each city mm. were to communicate have a platform where they could articulate mm. and from that on 
what's a what's a what's a positive metaphor could from that on like together more precisely put acupuncture needles into the still existing paradigm i don't know maybe asking for better resources or asking for i don't know um grants or asking for um support with uh, founding jurisdictional entities or you know i'm just really yeah. trying to sense into yeah. the elephant in the room which does not exist yet because i know before you want to you're sketching that i really want you to double down on like uh, what you already are doing and what you already are doing for a couple of years with the alternative uk but what we are trying to sense here is like what's the elephant in the room what would happen if these citizens action networks were to come together and there were an architecture and a scaffolding and an infrastructure uh, that that like yeah binds them together would yeah, you yeah i mean this was not this was i don't know i'm so bad sometimes at asking questions maybe i'm really bad generally asking questions. <laughs> indra, indra could you yes. could you sketch for the listeners this is what we the brother mm. we did with the alternative mm. uk mm. this is what worked this is what did not work mm. and then sketch kind of your very personal not only yours but like the next endeavor yeah. No. Yeah. What, what you mean? What, what what seems to be emerging? So, um, yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing is when we were prototyping, it was it was a very enjoyable and very I would say successful experiment going on. But it was quite obvious that we couldn't be the people to keep doing that because we were coming from the outside, you know. And there was a there was a it really has to come from the inside of those communities because they have to own what they're doing. So that, that's what made us slightly step back. If you're looking for something that didn't work, it wouldn't work if we were acting like the spider, right? Or we have a theory of change and we're not going to make it happen in this city and this city and this city. That's not it. What we are doing really, and we're now doing more successfully, is observing how it's arising anyway, right? So... We're, we step back a little bit and said, oh, by stepping back, we can see it already exists over here, over here, over here. Just to make a really crude example that maybe everybody would recognize themselves in their own life. Like when you're thinking about your community and you're thinking about how do I, you know, get it together and make it happen. If you think about the work of the much unpaid work of the women in the community, you'll probably see that it's already being held together in many ways through networks, right? Communities are actually, in fact, held together in many, many subtle networks, but often unpaid. So the work of unpaid carers, the work of, you know, very badly paid and much maligned social workers, you know, the work of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, parental groups or school groups or football clubs, they're not unnoticed, but they really have an important role to play in holding things together at an emotional level for people in their communities. So a lot of the network is already there. It's just that it's not self-conscious as a network that wants to now 
make decisions about something that it's never been asked to make decisions on, right? So imagine in a, in a football club, you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people captive in a way, family events, you know, families of, you know, you know, that could be asked questions, that could be offered stuff in exchange for making decisions about things. I mean, there's all sorts of dynamics that could be used that exist already in that community that you're living in. We don't have to make them up. We don't have to invent them. Uh, the perfect example would be that when David Cameron was the prime minister, he named this policy, that this goal he had. He wanted to, to, give, to launch the big society, right? So we got this title, the big society. This government is going to launch the big society, and he talked about he talked about a lot of language that I was used that I, that I would use, like networks and people supporting each other and the value of families and blah. He would talk about that, and then when he funded the big society, he gave all the money to social entrepreneurs, mostly young men, who were not embedded in the community in any way. They re, they invented this thing called the big society. And they spent loads of money trying to start this initiative and that initiative and try to make the community come together. And in the process, a lot of the people who were already holding the community together were losing their income, actually, because it was being diverted to this project called the Big Society. And in the end, not only did it die as a project, it never took off, it never seeded, but a lot of the good work that was there previous to that also died. This is the wrongness of a current political system that thinks it has to uh, make something happen and extract from a community, a community all of its, all of its uh, capital and then use that capital to build something that suits its needs. Really what needs to happen is to be able to resource what is naturally occurring and give it more shape, create a container for it, and help it to sense its own agency. So the metaphor that came up, for whatever reason, pretty technical, and, and the term overly stretched and the hashtag overly used uh, these days is this like DAO, this decentralized autonomous um, mm. organization. But what almost came up, what if and maybe really for that, there is a funder out there. What if the different citizens action networks could, on a blockchain, show what they are already doing mm. within the cities that are already existing, creating maps and data points of engagement where then I would say the state as well as non-state actors such as classical philanthropy but also I would call it good capital or silent capital mm -hmm. help nourish seed and scaffold the existing 
initiatives. I know, it, I don't know, I really sometimes receive yeah. uh, things, things like that live because ever since, I mean, you invited me to embark on that endeavor and we spent quite a while uh, on that really like sensing into like what is already there instead yeah. of like creating like a structure, right? Mm -hmm. Or supporting the initiatives already there and more leaning into what's the architecture, what's the scaffolding, what's the soil, what are the nutrients needed so that these initiatives can yeah, connect um, mm. and, and just get more, more powerful. Yeah, I leave it with that blurb. Um, and I still repeat this, uh, this, if somebody were to ask you, dear Indra, a couple of years with the initiative, UK. What are you doing? <laughs> hmm. Well, you mean the alternative, right? <laughs> Sorry, the alternative. Yes, yes. Spelling um, yeah, but I'm, I feel quite clear what we're doing. We're initiate. We do three things, and maybe the final thing is the one that we need to think about a little bit now. So the two things I've already described is, one is that we're convening the system, right? So the question of the elephant, right? Uh, let's, let's think about it as the blind men and the elephant. What we see is we see a lot of people who are working uh, to build a new system. Each one of them think they are the system, interestingly enough. But from our observational standpoint, they're all bringing a part of the system, uh, but they can't see the other parts, right? So it's like the blind men in a room, every one of them thinks they know what the elephant looks like because one of them feels the trunk and one of them feels the leg and one of them feels, you know, the tail. And, you know, everyone says, no, it looks like this. No, it looks like this. But it's only between them that they'll be able to really see this whole system that's rising now. And... When I say that we convene the system, we're doing that all the time by finding people who need to understand each other's work. So bringing, you know, uh, you know, somebody building a new economy into contact with somebody, um, you know, building a can, for example, or somebody working on personal development uh, or human development into contact with somebody you know, working with technology. You know, we're, we're doing the job of bringing people together and then uh, helping them, you know, make, make new sense of the system arising. So we do, that's one of the things we do. The second thing we do is build the community agency networks that we want to link up to each other. So now receiving the cans and building the can of cans, it's a job, as you say, of building architecture and scaffolding for this thing to come into existence. But the third thing we do, which I would usually say is the first thing we do, because it makes sense to people, they understand that we are operating a media system. So what's really important, going right back to where you started about how people need to feel some sort of, they want the evidence that what they're doing is making a mark in some way, but from the mainstream media, they can't see any sign of that. Their work would never be featured in the mainstream news. In fact, they're hearing the opposite. All the time they're hearing 
that they are powerless as individual human beings, that the future is very bleak, especially for young people, and that overall they have nothing to say that could really shift what, how the way politicians are thinking. So what our media system does is to not only show them to each other, so every day we're, we're, we're focusing and we're platforming a new part of the system, but at the end of every week, I write or somebody writes an editorial that joins the dots. So people can see themselves reflected in this growing emergent uh, media that we are providing for people. And um, what, so this year, what we want to do is grow that system. We want to, um, there's a lot of people doing good work in this media, good media work, and we're trying to now build a consortium of new media actors that can can then you know um, become much much larger than the one that we're that we can manage ourselves at this point, and it's a new system because it's not simply a new outlet of news and opinion, but it also has a point at which people can feed into the system. So we're inviting all these cans to feed into our news resource so that we know what is happening, we know what's, what the breakthroughs are, we know what new connections are being made, and that becomes part of what we are curating to build headlines from. Right. So this is a thing, there's a funder out there that is, can see the possibility of this that we are seeing, and I can tell you that all the people we work with know that they need this media system. They know not only that they want to hear every day that what they're doing makes sense. Other people also see it, but they want to see the bits that they can't see. You know, they can't um, they can't see their own blind spots. They need that reflected and other people projected into their space. Um, and that's not happening at all at the moment. I want to rewind a little bit and ask you when you were mentioning the parallel police hmm. do you see this evolving into something complementing a system like let's say the way parliamentary democracy works which for sure will be reformed here bits and pieces and here bits and pieces Or do you see it ultimately making it obsolete or replacing or are there like different layers to it? Yes, I'm curious. Mm, to mm. Well, we, you know, as I said before, we call it parallel because certainly for the foreseeable future, it would have to be parallel. So um, because we're not looking to overcome or overthrow the institutions that exist that help you know us stay afloat as a society have to be protected and preserved in some way but the culture within them has to change the way that resources flow has to change so it's a bit like you know you know you are a whole body But if you meet another whole body with a very different view on the world, that can really transform you. Your teacher can transform you, but you're still, this, you're still a body, right? 
you, you still got an organ, you know, the liver and the heart and the kidney, you're not transformed to that extent that you um, are no longer a biological reality, the same thing as you were, but you operate in a very different way, right? So, so the power of the second, of the parallel polis is to transform the whole ultimately. So although we work parallel, we think of the other part, the party political system as part of what we're doing. We're transforming the whole, right? It's a bit like saying we need more women in the system, but it's not that you just, that the women who come only bring women. No, the women who come bring everybody because they bring everybody who was previously excluded. That's kind of what feminization is. It's becoming whole. So it's not an either or, it's not a, it's not a competition between these two things. It's not that we're trying to make it obsolete in terms of destroy it, but absolutely it will look unrecognizable ultimately from what it was. So a 20th century political system will look unrecognizable in the, in, you know, in the next couple of decades because of the transformative action of this parallel polis. Cool, which brings me uh, to my last question also, I'm a very spontaneous and intuitive person. Um, let's, let's go into that. What are your wildest dreams space? So imagine there's the funding and there's the tailwind and there's more collaborators and there are a couple of prototypes that work like next year. Where do you sense this going forward? And, and, mm -hmm. and maybe, because I really think that would help the listeners, take a little bit the stepping stones that you sense into the future. Mm. Mention some of them. Okay, and as a way of doing that, let me start with something that I promised to pick up later on, and I'm going to pick it up now, which is the difference between hard power and soft power. Because that would frame all of this. And um, so hard power, just going back to the classic definition of hard power, soft power, which is something that, a term that was in, in, invented by Joseph Nye, um, he was a head, head of the Kennedy School of Governance and Bill Clinton's advisor. And it was just post-Vietnam when America, the largest superpower in the world, failed to win a war against one of the smallest countries in the world, which was Vietnam. And it was a real crisis of confidence for America for a while that they couldn't win with their hard power. So hard power is guns and money. So no amount of guns or money could win the war for America. This was a crisis for the Americans, right? And Joseph and I kind of saved the day by naming the fact that America will always be the greatest superpower. It didn't have that much um, to, um, predictive powers, but it would always be the, the, the greatest superpower because it had the power of attraction, right? It has a story to tell about itself, 
which everybody wants to buy into that story. And because they want to be part of that, they will go to America, they will read about America, they will invest in America. Um, and in the action of doing that, America grows, um, you know, relationship with people all over the world because of this power of the attraction. And through this relationship, they have influence over everybody's actions. That is called soft power, right? It's not hard power. They're not coercing anything. It's just the power of their attraction. So I was really fascinated by this as a completely different view of what power was. And then I began to see over time that this really is talking about the power of narrative or the power of a story. So in America, the American dream, the power of the American dream made it a superpower, right? And it's just a story. Unfortunately, it's probably very much now in decline because that story is the very thing that is collapsing. You know, Black Lives Matter really pierced a hole in it. Not such an American dream for everyone, right? It's not anyone who can get to the top, right? But also um, this idea that people were essentially free uh, has really been, you know, that's really under question now. It's the very thing that Trump um, put on the table that, you know, the liberals uh, are controlling the rest of us, okay? So... Okay, soft power, the power of narrative. So my, my dream scenario, and I think, I think I'm actually already here in this space with you, already peddling this thing. You know, there's a dream. We have a story of what is possible already. Personally, I'm inhabiting that every day. So I feel as if I'm already in this possibility. I'm living this, this dream, right? How I see it unfolding step by step, is, is honestly at the first level, it's about people owning it in themselves. You know, in what way am I, as a citizen, blocking a new system coming through, coming through me? You know, how do I look at politics? How do I look at my own agency? How do I look at the person over there? If I think that everybody who's voting opposite from me, or if I, if I get to mind, you know, whether it's a person who takes the vaccine or, is, or refuses to take the vaccine. Do I make that person my enemy? If I'm busy doing that, I am part of the old system. I've totally been co-opted by that old system that says we can't understand each other. We're always going to be fighting each other. It's just a question of who wins. If I'm holding that in my system, then that is the very first place to start. And then the second place after that is to start to make relationship out of your usual comfort zone to exercise that muscle of overcoming your own bubble and thinking about the world as something that, you know, is inevitably going to be run by elites. So there are things that we can do that are personal. And then, you know, the question of do you want to be part of building community agency networks, you know, there are many ways to do that, but I recommend it starts with you just being, finding the people around you that you feel are willing to have a go at this and become a group and start to think about what kind of parties you can hold in your community that is going to bring people together. And I'm saying this because I know you a little bit and I know maybe your readers or your listeners will be similar, but this idea of throwing the right throwing the better party, you know, 
we won because we partied better than the other. <laughs> you know, throwing the better party means how many people do you attract and how diverse is that audience and what kind of conversation is possible there? You know, that's how Uffe Elbeck uh, started his political laboratories. Just, just go to a place and say, you know, join the party, you know, and then we can transform this idea of what is a party anyway. Right? So if you want to get more into system building and building a can and doing the cosmolocal dance, you know, there's all the there's all the information about that on the website with us in my book, The Politics of Waking Up. I'll tell you the story. But I have to say, if you're not doing the inner work of overcoming your own boundaries, you're going to find it twice as hard as the people who are doing that work. Who then welcome, you know, this possibility of cans arising where they are, of cans being connected to cans. It's a quite a feminine process. You know, it's about relationship and 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 appreciating the other and moving into action, you know, and giving yourself to something. Invest your time, invest yourself. Give, you know, it's literally it's how you give yourself to this process process. That's how that's how it that's how it uh, reveals itself. So beautiful. <laughs> the, the the only thing that that I might add is and end it with that and invite you to if you want to give it some closing words if not I would really literally just say Ada mm. I think this crisis and no we won't dive into that whole rabbit hole mm. but certainly it is a crisis that has awakened many people on a planetary scale and those who are not quieted, sedated, inundated or feel suffocated, they feel the need for agency. So I certainly know that in my heart, mm. this can of cans and these citizens action networks are already connecting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So again, Ada, and thank you, Indra. Is there anything that you would like to point out? passing on to you for the last words. Yeah, I, I, I would express my appreciation because when you're one of the people who appeared, you know, in that moment of what, what, what's next, you know, and I, when I think about the connectors like you and the miracle, you know, of these rooms, you know, so often I hear people say, the problem with the, with the system is we're so disconnected you know, we're so disconnected. And I say, hang on, you're in, a, you're in a Zoom room with 20 people from all over the world. And I just heard you sharing your most intimate story about how you changed your life and you have changed my life. 
really? Are we so disconnected? Isn't this a miracle moment we're in? Can you not and can we not acknowledge it and invest in it? Yeah, is acknowledge and invest. Exactly. We are connected more than ever. Yes. Than ever. Yeah. Before. Yeah. The capital C. Yes. I tell you, right? What we used to dream of in our spiritual reveries. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we were all connected? I tell you, it's happened, Alistair. And, you know, I have to thank Mark Zuckerberg and I have to thank, you know, the, the people who built the architecture. And now I say thank you and we'll take over. Right? Because now the people uh -huh. need to occupy yeah. the tools, occupy this new planet, occupy the meta space that everybody's so afraid is going to run off. It will run off if you don't occupy. Mm -hmm occupied this incredible tools and spaces that have been created because of our yearning for those spaces. Here they are now. Now, let's go. Let's do the stuff that we know we can do. Mm. This is the moment for that. Aww. Indra, <laughs> thanks so much for this precious time spent mm. together. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Thanks from the bottom of my heart for life making us meet. And me? Ada. Ada. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>